I'm former Congressman Gary Franks. And I'm his son, Gary. I'm millennial. We're discussing everything from politics to sports and pop culture. From very different perspectives. We speak frankly. Welcome back. Yes, I know you've been asking for this and we've been kind of preempted by a lot of George Floyd and racial injustice and riots and protests over the last several weeks. Um, we're not going to make any other comment about the aforementioned statement because uh, we may have a bonus episode sometime very soon. For today, we're going directly to So You Want to Run for Office. In our past weeks, we've talked about how you start. And we talked about you know research that you have to do, your homework you got to do. You have to know the landscape. You have to uh, meet with the party leaders. You got to make yourself known. Um, you got to seek potentially a political appointed position. It'd be very helpful. Also, you have to, more than anything else, know why you're running. What's your passion? Why are you running? I'll never forget this interview that was done by Roger Mudd. They asked Ted Kennedy, who was a senator at the time. So, Senator Kennedy, why are you running for president? And it was ugly. He had no answer. And that was the end of his campaign. So you must be able to ask, answer that very fundamental question of why are you running? What's your passion? Volunteering. Very key component, whether you're talking about volunteering and being a volunteer in the community or being a volunteer on other people's campaigns. We talked about that. We talked about how you gotta build your resume. That's your story. That would be part of the reason why people should vote for you. And then we talked about, and I think in our first episode, that issues are different. Fixing potholes are different than war and peace. Big difference. So local issues are far different from the state issues, which are far different from the federal issues. But you have to understand that you, you must learn the issues per the race that you are running. And as I said earlier, it's most recommended that, I, that you start near the beginning, such as running for city council, mayor, or potentially a state rep position or state senator position. Then I also mentioned how it's, it's far better if you found if you would find an open seat type situation. Running against an incumbent is very difficult. Doable, but difficult. And lastly, we talked about the internet, the influence of the internet and what it has done to change the whole landscape of one's political strategy. All those things combined can allow you to cut the line. You could be in a situation where you're able to leap over other people and be able to run for that position that would get you launched into your political career. So dad, did you make any mistakes or any slip ups um, that you made in the beginning phases uh, while you were running? Well, you know, none of us are perfect. And obviously uh, 2020 vision is always very accurate, but, um, Regrets, yes. Regrets, Mr. Uh, okay, yes, yes. I would say that one of the um, fundamental parts of running for office is 
to uh, be prepared to win. <laughs> and that may sound like a very strange statement, but it's very important. In other words, you need to start to work on building your team even before you get elected. And I didn't do that when I ran for Congress. I did not have a true team when I started to run. And the consequences of that can be fatal because what would happen, Gary, is that, and I did this, you, you borrow from other people's team. And that is not a smart thing to do because you cannot have two masters. And thus, if someone is on someone else's team and you bring them on your team, it's very likely that someone, that same someone is still on that other person's team. And unfortunately in politics, because it is a competitive game um, and people don't want people cutting the line and moving ahead of them. If you have someone on your team that truly is not on your team because they're on someone else's team, it can be a major, major problem. We're going to get into molds and campaigns a little later. That's a little, that's much further down uh, in our um, discussions. But suffice it to say, when you're out there, start to think about these five people, five different types of people that you should be looking at. One person who has the personality of being that super organized, just a very organized person. You, you tell them you're going to be somewhere, you have to be somewhere at seven o'clock. They're at your door at 645. You tell them that you, you would like to be able to, to do some events that night. And they have three events set up for you back to back, giving you time to get to each event. That person's a very organized person. You're going to see that when you're campaigning or just in working with that individual. Could be a former high school classmate. So you need an organized person. The second type of person you need, Gary, is the person who is the super salesman. So they're always out there selling and, and, and recruiting people and convincing people that, that this is the right way to go and uh, a, a cheerleader almost type person. Now, that individual is, would be extremely important because he or she will help you build your volunteer base. Now, the organized person, that's pretty self-evident. That person is going to keep you keep the trains running on time. So that's that's a pretty uh, self-evident type of characteristic. Now, the third type of person that you need, no particular order, is a person who basically, Gary, this is going to sound strange, who can listen. Now, <laughs> who's not really a talker, but listens and can come back to you with information that would be helpful to advance your campaign to advance your operations within your alderman's office or within your, your congressional office. Just a listener. Person should be smart and just would be a listener, not really a talker. Then you need a person who has, he's probably older than you, very sophisticated. And this person is the person who you would have to make connections with the business community the money community in your behalf. So a rather sophisticated person who can go out there and, and meet with people a lot older than you who could, who could be influenced by his presence. Could be a community leader. It could be um, a banker, um, that type of person. And then last but not least, you need a person who could be you. <laughs> it sounds a little strange, 
but it's a surrogate, someone who can go out there and you, when you can't make a meeting, he or she can go to that town hall meeting. He or she can go to that, that, that uh, Republican uh, town committee meeting and represent you and know your issues in and out the same way that you would and know what you would think, know what you would eat, know what you would drink. And that type of person is very critical. So when you have those five individuals, you have the, the, the core of what can be known as a kitchen cabinet. And that's one of the reasons why people who come from political families have an advantage because they already have those people in place because they, they can get that those people from their father. They can get those people from their uncle or from their cousin who's in politics. And those people will, trans will move over easily and they're loyal because they've already worked for the family. So that would give individuals a tremendous advantage when you have those five types of people in place. Has social media changed um, how campaigns are being uh, ran now? And in some uh, respect, um, has it changed the type of people you need in a team? Well, yes, because you want to be able to get as many people who are enthusiastic about your, your campaign as possible. And the best way to do that is to allow those individuals to go to your website and to learn more about your positions on the issues and then check that box saying, hey, I would like to volunteer or I would like to, to, um, to do a fundraiser for you or something of that nature. So most definitely. Gary, let me touch upon a couple of other points. When you're getting ready to run, because we're getting close now, we're getting close to running now. When you're getting ready to run, you have to understand the political chart of progression. Now, when I was in, in high school, I said to myself, okay, what does it take to be an all-state basketball player? What do I have to do to become an all-state basketball player? I said this when I was maybe, a, thought about this when I was a sophomore, freshman or sophomore in high school. So I, I did my research and I saw that anyone who averaged 20 points a game as a junior and ha was on a winning team, a team that won a lot of games, a top 10 team in their, in, their, um, in their classification per size, you make the All-State team. And then I saw, I said, how do we become a high school All-American? And I did my research, had magazines and research, all this information. And I saw that if you scored 30 points a game as a senior, you're going to get All-American mention. And that's exactly what happened. Now, I also saw that if you were a freshman, when you had a situation where freshmen only played freshman basketball, that if you average 25 points or more, you're going to be all league, all Ivy League, or all Big Ten, or all whatever, and you would probably at least have a chance to go to an NBA camp. So I got part of that right. My sophomore year, my junior year at Sacred Heart, I averaged 21 points a game, and thus I was second-team All-State. And then my senior year in high school, I averaged close to 30. I was a high school honorable mention All-American. And at Sacred and at Yale, I averaged 25 points a game, and I had a chance to to be in the, in the NBA camp with the with the Jazz. Now, why do I say this? Why do I mix basketball in with politics? Because it's the same thing in politics. When I got involved in politics, I looked at the landscape and I said, "Okay, I don't want to be president of the United States, but you got to put that up there as a, as as a as a goal or vice president. What's the top position that you can be in politics, and then work your way down." So, I'm going to ask you a question, Gary. Guess what would be 
the most common position for a person who would go on to become president? We're talking about in the beginning stages? What, what most, pres, most people who became president of the United States held this position. I would say Congress. That is right, a congressman. Most of the presidents, 19, 18 or 19 of the people who, who went on to be president of the United States served at one time as a congressman. That's an astounding number. Now, they didn't go directly from the House of Representatives to, to the presidency. Only Garfield did that. Um, but you know, many of them, or I should say 18 of them, were former congressmen. So what would be the next most popular position in which a person would would what would go on to be president and that would be governor 17 of the of the people who sat in the white house were former governors and then 16 were former u.s senators 14 served as vice president and usually the, the people who are congressmen go on to serve as vice president first and then go on to run for president such as such as um george H.W. Bush did that with Ronald Reagan, and such as what Joe Biden is attempting to do right now. Al Gore attempted to do that as well. So it's very common for that to, to, to take place. So I said to myself, okay, how did these people, what did they do before that? So many of them were state reps or state senators, like President Obama was, or some started as mayors, some started as city council people, etc. So I said, okay, now what, what are the state positions? When you know, Connecticut has, and all states have uh, positions such as a state treasurer, and they have positions such as secretary of state of that particular state. They have positions like uh, a lieutenant governor. They have positions like attorney general. So I studied those positions. I, I looked at and they have positions like state controller. So I looked at all those positions and I said, well, if you get to one of those statewide positions, it'd make it easier for me to make the climb to, to, uh, to Congress, whether it be the Senate or to the House of Representatives. So I did, at the age of 32 or 33, I ran for statewide office because I thought from being an alderman, I ran for statewide office because I saw that as a stepping stone to going to the House or Senate. And then I recognized the fact that when doing research, that the most popular position to launch one's career from, I know I said the most popular one to, to go from this position to the presidency eventually would be a congressman, but the most popular position to actually launch your political career is actually attorney general of whatever state. And Connecticut's proof of that even right now. Connecticut had Joe Lieberman was a former attorney general, became a senator, became the Democratic nominee for president, for vice president. Dick Blumenthal succeeded Joe Lieberman as attorney general, and guess where he is now? He's in the United States Senate. Kamala Harris in California, but guess what position she had before? She was attorney general. And you can go on and on. You can go Walter Mondale. What position did he have before? He was attorney general. So attorney general is a very hot position to launch one's career from. The reason for that, Gary, is because 
when you're attorney general, you really don't have a political record. You're going after bad guys. That's it. So how can anyone dislike your attorney general? You can't because they're only going against bad guys. They don't have a voting record on whether or not they voted for this or for that, against that. They don't have a voting record because they don't vote. But they get a great deal of attention because they're going after the bad people. And it's a statewide position, which is also something that is very important to, uh, to look at as far as building one's career. So once I knew all of that and understood all of that, I saw myself as, a, as, a, as an alderman. Then I wanted to go state for statewide position, state controller, and then was going to look at running for Congress. And I also saw myself that in a, in a position where even if it didn't work out for state controller, I was going to do everything I could to win the congressional district as a state controller candidate. And that's exactly what I did. And that positioned me to be able to run for Congress in 19. 90 because I had overwhelmingly won the 5th Congressional District when I ran for, for state controller. And when I ran, I was able to say that I've already run won the Congressional District when I ran for state controller, and none of my opponents were able to make that statement. So when you're getting ready to run for office, you have to not only think about the office that you're running for immediately, but you also have to think about that next office that you're thinking of running for. And you must look the part. So you don't want to look like the position you have. You want to act and look like the position you want. And that's a very key element for being successful politically. You prepare yourself for the position that you want, not the position that you have. You do the job that you have, but you position yourself for the position you would like to have next. And that all goes back to research. I'm that all goes back to research, doing your homework. That is, that's the key element of being able to launch your political career successfully. Now, now you're at the point where you know the landscape, you know, you've done your research, you know how, what positions hire. If you're a city alderman, is what's a higher position? Well, potentially even a state rep position could be more and more attractive than, than an alderman's position. I deem it as being higher. Why do I deem it being higher? Well, because for starters, you get you get paid more. So that's usually a barometer of whether or not a position is higher than another position, <laughs> simply stated. So state senator, you know, et cetera, it's, it's a higher position because once again, you, you are now representing more people. You're, you're serving more people as a state senator than you would as a city councilman. City councilman, Waterbury had 15, and you're doing 100,000 people. That's basically the size of water, 110,000 maybe. While a state rep, you're actually representing potentially 20, 25, 30,000 people. But if you're a state senator, you're actually representing about 100,000 or more people. And if you're a congressman, you're representing 700,000 people. So that, once again, is it can give you an idea of your progression and, and what you should be looking at. Now, if you're an attorney general of a state, you're representing the entire state, whatever the state may be. Same would be true if you were, if you were a state treasurer. Same would be true if you were a secretary of state of a state. And the same would be true, obviously, if you're a lieutenant governor. Keep in mind that in most states, if you're going to run for governor, Connecticut's a perfect example of this. Up until the last maybe eight years, 
every single person who became governor of the state of Connecticut, every single person was either a lieutenant governor before or a congressman or a United States senator before. Every single person. They've gone away from that over the last couple of elections and elected mayors, but that is atypical for the history of the state of Connecticut. They, if someone want to challenge me, go ahead and do your research. They've been former congressmen, for the most part, and lieutenant governors who become governors of certain states, especially Connecticut. I could talk about that. And that's been the, that's the way it's been. Lowell Wacker was a United States senator and became a governor. But that's it. That's usually the way in which it would be a person would progress. Very unusual for a person to just be a businessman and run for office and get elected or just be a city councilman and run for governor and get elected. That's a big jump. Or run from, from, from a city mayor and run. Yeah, that's a big jump. We're not, Connecticut's not, you know, San Francisco, it's not California where you can run. If you're mayor of San Francisco or mayor of Los Angeles, it's a natural progression for you to be governor. You're, you're managing a city that, that's, that's huge. But um, that wouldn't be the case in a state like, uh, like Connecticut. So understanding the progression as to what position you should be looking at, because you never know, as I said earlier, you're looking for that open seat as being the, the best opportunity for you. And you just don't know, even with your research, when or where that open seat's going to, to um, materialize. And you don't want to take a lateral move. You don't want to uh, go from, uh, from being uh, uh, as a mayor and then becoming state rep, you know, that doesn't make sense. You don't want to go down either. So you got to make sure that all of your moves politically are, are moves that, are, that would advance your overall, your, your overall goal. I think building your team could be its own, um, its own episode in itself. Cause as I'm looking through it, um, that, there's so much that is, you know, that goes. It is. There's a lot that I think we should, you know, we should mention it now. But I want to touch on that again. There, Gary, you're absolutely right because the team that you're going to build, that's the team you're going to have for many, many years to come, and and it should be because these individuals are are going to and should become almost family to you. Now, could they? move on and go into a different direction or could they uh, turn out not to be uh, worth their salt, so to speak, or yeah, that could always, that could happen in any profession. But for the most part, this team is going to be with you uh, for quite some time and we'll, we'll share your ups and your downs. Following three terms on the city council and three terms in Congress, former Congressman Gary Franks's consulting firm, has helped scores of companies, large Fortune 500 firms, small businesses, and even startup companies secure millions of dollars in federal government contracts and international business opportunities. Congressman Franks, a Yale grad, author, Fortune 500 executive, and former visiting professor at Georgetown University, UVA, and Hampton University, will use his knowledge, experience, relationships, and strategic plan model to help you reach that next level of success. Schedule your participation in an upcoming webinar to learn just how Congressman Franks can help you. For more information, email gary at garyfranks.org now. Next, 
you're getting close now. You're getting close to running. And you make up your mind. Obviously, we haven't talked about the reason why you're an X party or you're a Y party. I gave you my reason for that. And I gave you one element of my reason for that. There's another element that we'll talk about in another segment having to do with the fact that I believe that 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 people should be in of all races should be in both parties. But that's another dive, that's that's another topic for another day. But now you're at that point when you're zooming in on the position you're gonna run for. So now folks, you're you're just about there. You are gonna zoom in on that particular position that you would like to seek initially for office. It could be a situation where it's an open seat, like it was for me when I ran for city council. But for a lot of people, you have to run against an incumbent. And there are reasons why you, you all your research that you've done in general terms, is a reason why that same research is important as you're looking at your potential opponent. How long has he and she, she been there? Uh, what's their track record? What have they done? What are some of their accomplishments? You gotta dig through all of those things. When you're running for the House and for the House of Representatives or you're running for the United States Senate or any other position, you hire a team of people called opposition, opposition research people. They're paid a sizable amount of money and they come up with some information that for the most part uh, I had when I ran, I never used because many of the points that they would come up with are just garbage points. In other words, they are so trashy that I don't really care that the person may have done something in this manner. And I don't think the public should need to know about those issues because it does not really matter as far as this person's ability to retain their job or to obtain your job. So I never got into that type of uh, politics. It's done all the time now, and probably I was very naive not to practice that kind of politics. But I didn't. I felt that if, if my opponents wanted to to act in that manner, and I didn't, you know, so be it. Didn't bother me because, as I said before, you know, I retired from politics at 43. Most people don't even start at 43, and I had served 12 years. <laughs> so obviously, I was. <laughs> It didn't really bother me to, uh, to, uh, to to depart. You know, that's one of the beauties of being an athlete. You win some games, you lose some games, and you know how to get off the field. And so that's that, that's exactly what I did. And you can contribute in various other ways, and that's what I have always tried to do. So opposition research, as far as finding out their voting records, as far as finding out their achievements, uh, all of those issues fair game. And that is what you need to start to do. And as you're running for all the men or positions like that state rep, you know, you're going to have to probably do that. <laughs> you're not going to be able to afford to hire other people to do that type of opposition research. And, you know, a good fair way of looking at it is go up to the state capitol and talk to the other party and ask them, what do you think of John Doe? What has John Doe done? And they'll tell you, oh, John Doe's a waste of time. He's, 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 and get information in that manner. That, that goes back to our talking about talking to the party leaders. 
the party leaders can be extremely helpful to you because they know all about John Doe. And what they don't know, they can find out for you very quickly. And you could ascertain records of their, of their attendance at meetings, their, their voting record, because a lot of times, a lot of people just don't make their meetings. And if they're being paid to perform a certain duty and they're not there, that should be numero uno for, for why they shouldn't be in office. So there's a lot of things that you can do by, by, by uh, leaning on the party leadership to be able to help you with that type of information. So even before you run now, you, you're gonna you have to plan out how you're gonna beat this person. So you should take out a sheet of paper and just say, hey, this is my plan and how I'm going to defeat him or her. This is where I see the person being vulnerable. This is where I see my strength and put it all on paper. And then you're almost ready to announce your candidacy. Not yet, but you're almost ready. But as you get to that point, you want to try to avoid the P word, which is a primary. You don't want that. That's when you're going against someone within your own party for one job. No, you don't want that. And so that is a hurdle you have to get out of the way. The main reason why you don't want a primary it, because it's a it's a waste of money. You're gonna to have to spend money to beat someone, and even after you you beat that someone, you're out of money. You gotta raise more money to to, to to run against the 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 person of the other party. So you waste a lot of money. You waste a lot of time. Some people would say, "Well, no, it's good because you improve your name ID." Well, let's put it this way. When I ran for Congress, the National Party came up to Connecticut and said, if you guys decide to have a primary after the convention, we're out. We're not going to participate at all in your election. So they made all of us take a pledge. And they made us sign a pledge saying that if we did not get the nomination at the convention, we would not primary the person who did. Now, everyone thought they were going to get it, but I was in fifth place out of five candidates. So, you know, they knew I would sign because I didn't, I wasn't even supposed to get that far. And that's a, that's a topic for another day when we talk about primaries and what you have to go through in a primary. But the main thing is you want to avoid it. And I, I avoided it even in 1990, um, luckily, and that was, took a lot of pressure from the National Party to actually convince those individuals who are qualified to primary to, to back down. It, it can be very exhausting, but that's because Connecticut has a convention system, which is one in which delegates go to a convention and they make the nomination. And then people who clear a certain threshold, I think it was 20% of the delegates can wage a primary. Some states have straight primary systems. So you go out there and you and you register as a candidate, and then you have a then everyone goes up before the voters and get elected. While Connecticut had a different system, still still would have a, diff, a, a system of this nature where the party leaders play a role in, in making that d decision. Topic for another day, because my convention was a rather um, bizarre one since it went on from seven o'clock, started at seven p.m., and it didn't end until three thirty in the morning. Uh, so obviously there's a lot, there's a story behind that and we'll talk about that at another time.
But avoiding a convention, I mean, a primary, is something that you, once again, need the party leaders to help out on. So it's, a, it's and you need individuals who are elected officials in a similar capacity within your party to also help you um, prevent. But it's very important that you try to event, prevent a, a primary. Now, a way in which you can prevent a messy primary is to build up endorsements. Endorsements can be huge. So once again, your homework that you did early on and all those IOUs you have out there from helping other people in their campaigns, that's when you turn to them and say, John Smith, you remember me. Oh, yeah, you helped me in my campaign. You did this. Yeah. Will you endorse me for state rep? Will you endorse me for city council? Oh, okay. Yeah, no big deal. I'll, I'll endorse you. That means a lot. Because John Smith, who could be a, a sitting congressman or could be a sitting senator, state senator, for him to come out and say, I, I endorse you for, 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 for city council or for, for mayor or for state rep, it could be huge. It would result in the person who's thinking about primarying you backing off. And the party leaders, once again, can step in and tell that person that maybe you should pass on this opportunity and come back on another day and run for something else in which we, as a party, would support you doing. And oftentimes, that does prevail if you build up the endorsement and the momentum for that position that you're seeking. So we're out of time for today. Don't forget to subscribe.